Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. I don't want to just jump on to a market if it's not the right fit for the brand. You got to be real. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to pivot and serve a new demographic, the downside of marketing to multiple demographics at once, and whether you should charge for shipping or offer it for free. Today, I'm joined by Darren Hager from Heyday Footwear. Heyday Footwear creates unisex, flat-soled kicks for the freshest in fitness. You can go from leg day to cardio to day night in the same kicks. And was started in 2006 and based out of Framingham, Massachusetts. Welcome, Darren. Hi. Great to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on. So the first thing I've seen, I think I was telling you off uh, off air about how I've heard your, heard your success story, seen your success story already online. And then when I checked out your your site, the, the shoes, the products that you sell definitely are kind of uh, popping, right? I can see why it's an exciting and, and a product that, that you're selling. So where did this idea come from to, to create a shoe like this? Well, I had been a, uh, a corporate footwear designer. Uh, for about 10 years um, previous to starting Heyday. Um, I was a designer at Puma and Sperry Topsider, DKNY, uh, a few other places, as well as being a toy designer for uh, for Marvel Comics when I got out of uh, design school in the mid-90s. And um, maybe I was just um, a rebel or, you know, I had ADD. Maybe that was it. But I didn't really like working for people. Um I had a, an, I had some decent-sized um, hits as far as uh, successful uh, shoe designs at other brands, but I felt like I could do better if they would just listen to me, listen to what I want to do. And in 2006, I left my cushy corporate job at Sperry Topsider and um, went out on my own, um, initially just uh, consulting for other uh, footwear brands as, as a designer. And in 2006, um, that's sort of when the whole sneakerhead craze or trend, uh, you know, it really started, um, hitting the mainstream. Um, and there was a kid in Boston where I'm based who was sort of, uh, I don't know, he was like the, the face man for, for basically the sneaker head scene. And he was asked, uh, I guess, to do uh, an interview with uh, a local uh, like news magazine on, I think it was ABC. And he had reached out to me because he had seen, I was doing paintings, I was like painting sneakers, and uh, I already had a relationship with some of the, some of the uh, shoe stores and sneaker stores in the area from having been in the business. And he had heard about me and he said, hey man, I'm I'm getting interviewed on on ABC and they're looking for other people to uh, to talk to about sneakers. And, you know, do you want to do it? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I had the camera crew and the producer uh, come to my home design studio. And, um, yeah, I showed them, you know, my corporate design work. I showed them the, the paintings I was doing, freelance work I was doing. And uh, the cameraman was filming some B-roll. Uh, in the office and the producer 
said off, you know, off camera, Hey, you've been, uh, you've been a, a corporate designer, a freelance designer, you paint sneakers, you know, what do you want to do next? And I just off the top of my head, I, I said, well, I'd like to have my own brand one day and didn't think anything else of that conversation. A couple of weeks later, the show airs. I wound up getting a decent amount of, uh, of airtime. And um, when the host at the end was sort of recapping, they had my stuff up on the green screen behind them. And the host goes, so what's next for sneaker designer Darren Hager? He'll be launching his own brand later <laughs> this year. Now, I never said I was launching my own brand that year. They asked me what would I like to do. So, you know, there's three or five million people in New England or the Boston area. I don't know how many of them were actually watching that show that, that night in um, April of 2006, but they kind of outed me. Um, and so people, all the people I knew were like, oh, oh my God, you're starting your own brand? I'm like, well, I guess I am. And I had the, I had the connections um, in the industry. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And didn't really realize where it was going to go. Um, and, uh, you know, 10 years later, here I am. But that's, that's kind of how it all started. Just uh, sort of an offhand remark made to either the right or the wrong person, I guess you might say. Yeah, I like how someone else made you publicly accountable and it wasn't you that, that made that commitment, but it looks like it worked out in the end. Now, you, you of course, like you're saying, you had experience working in, in, corporate shoe des in, in corporate world designing shoes. Now you were going off on your own. What were you surprised by by going off on your own that, that you maybe took that you had to learn or that, that you had to develop yourself now that you were on your own and probably didn't have the same resources that you had when you were working at a larger company? Oh, well, I, I had to learn, I had to learn everything. I mean, you know, when I was at, at Puma, I was one of maybe 20 designers and then there were probably 20 product developers who are sort of the people who work sort of, between the designers and the factories to get the actual shoes made. And then they have obviously have a whole marketing team and e-commerce was still in its infancy uh, in the early 2000s at that point. But you know, the point is, is that there was a specific person for each, each role. And I kind of had to learn every role. Um, I came up with the, my own title uh, about eight years ago, uh, chief everything officer still says CEO but uh, everything officer, it, I mean, that really explains what I do because I, I literally do everything. I mean, footwear design for me at this point, maybe it's like five, maybe 10% of what I do. The rest of it is, is running the business, marketing the business, social media, customer service, import, export. Uh, like I do everything. Um, so there was, there was this very steep learning curve and I'm still learning. Um, the business, the business was originally, um, when I started out, uh, we, we were just sort of a streetwear brand, like another sneaker brand and we sold wholesale. Um, I managed to, I started small, uh, with a couple of boutiques that sort of took a chance and kind of worked my way up. I was in, uh, five Bloomingdale's, 
Revolve Clothing, ASOS, Finish Line, um, Oak in, uh, in Brooklyn. I mean, I was doing the gamut of uh, sort of Finish Line, which was like, you know, a sporting goods store in the mall, to better department stores like Bloomingdale's, to Oak and Revolve and ASOS, which are sort of really contemporary um, clothing and footwear retailers. And by 2009, the recession hit, uh, or we were in the middle of it, and um, business was was taking a hit. Um, the big retailers wanted faster sell-through, and all the independent retailers had no credit anymore. And so they would, we would show four times a year at trade shows, usually in Las Vegas and New York. And, you know, they work a couple seasons ahead and you'd show your samples and the retailer buyers would come in. They'd say, oh, you know, we're going to go with with this line and then we make the shoes and then they pay for them and then they take delivery of them months later. Except all the little independent stores would order shoes and then t- tell me, oh, well, you know, we don't have the money. But I just made the shoes. You have a signed purchase order. We just made $10,000 worth of shoes for you. Oh, yeah, but, you know, we don't have room in our stock room or any excuse you could think of. So I wasn't, I wasn't doing well enough at the big guys to have them keep me going season after season. And the little guys were screwing me. And I needed to figure out what to do. I had a, I had a whole sales team and my sales manager quit because he just wasn't making enough money, took the sales, his sales team with him. And it was, it was basically just me. And I realized I, I had to figure something out because uh, I didn't want to I didn't want to give up. And there was a, a really good book by a sort of a, I guess, a well-known retail expert in New York named Robin Lewis. Uh, and the book is called um, The New Rules of Retail. And I had gotten my hands on that book. And that basically takes you through. Uh, retail from sort of Sears Roebuck catalog in 1900s through uh, department stores in the 50s and 60s to independent retailers and then sort of to now where brands are realizing that they don't need retailers or middleman. They can sell direct and cut the middleman out completely. And so that book really struck a chord with me. And that's when I was like, you know what? I'm going to jettison all of my wholesale business, whatever I had left, and I'm going to start selling direct to consumer on on the website. And uh, that's what I started doing in 2011, I think. Mm, got it. So you are probably one of the first guests that have had on this podcast that's been around long enough that had to go through this, the economic downturn 2008-2009. Now that you've gone through it, and we're kind of in the golden era right now of e-commerce where everything seems to be going well for a lot of people, but you know, there's going to be a point where it's, there's going to be a downturn again, because that's just the way the economy goes. How, based on what you, you went through, like how would you prepare in the future for, for a future economic downturn? Well, um, I think I'm, I'm able to protect myself because I'm not dealing with, with retailers anymore. Mm-hmm. Retailers, they want to, they want to sell the, the easiest thing for them to sell. They, they, they really don't ever want to have to work hard to, to sell a product. Um, they, you know, if something sold well last season, 
they, they want to bring it back in and they'll just order the same thing over and over again. Um, and I, I moved away from that because I, I knew that I had customers, you end users who loved my shoes. But when I was selling to retailers, I mean, my whole business was in the hands of maybe 10 or 15 buyers. And if the buyer didn't like what I had that season, they wouldn't come back. And that doesn't mean that the customers didn't want the shoes. It just means that the buyer didn't, didn't feel it. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that maybe three quarters of the time, the buyers really didn't know what they were talking about. Um, and I didn't like leaving my business in the hands of someone else. So by going direct to consumer, which now, you know, everybody's doing it. I mean, I, when I started, Warby Parker had just started uh, Bonobos or Bonobos, however it is. They had just started, and that was like a, you know, people couldn't be like, why would, why would you not want to be in Bloomingdale's? Well, because Bloomingdale's had me on consignment for four years or four seasons, and they didn't want to pay me, uh, you know. So the, the way to, I think, protect myself from a downturn is by offering a really great product that you can't get anywhere else. It's not a commodity. We don't sell to other retailers, so you can only get it from me. The product itself is is really unique and stands out. Because we're selling direct to consumer, our prices are lower than they would be if we had to account for for a millman and markup. And because I'm the owner and I I offer amazing customer service. Um, I think when you have product and customer service and uniqueness, I think you can withstand anything as long as as long as the customer the end customer is still there i'm gonna have a business and sort of the interesting thing about my brand is i've i've pivoted a few times and it's the same product basically but i found different different demographics each time who who love the shoes uh because they're so unique um you know right now we're in sort of the fitness market bodybuilding Mm -hmm. gyms but before I entered that market in 2014, we were really big with hip hop dancers, and uh, I was I had shoes on. So you think you can dance five seasons in a row, and America's Best Dance Crew, and America's Got Talent, and you know like a ton of places. And we were in that market for two years, and we had also done a uh, a collaboration with a really big video game uh, called Saints Row. Um, the shoes were actually in the game, coded into the game. You, you, your character would go into the store to outfit themselves in the game, and you could buy Heydays in the game. And then we sold those shoes directly to the customers uh, on our website and on the software uh, company's website. So I had that whole market of, of video gamers. And before that, we were just sort of streetwear, which is just, you know, cool, you know, I don't know, cool kicks, you might say. Um, and the product really, I, I've certainly updated it, but it's it's primarily the same product. So it, having a really unique product and be able to find new niches uh, who've never seen it before, I think is is uh, really important. 
Yeah, I love how you've been able to adapt with the the market demand. And now that you mentioned, I can certainly see these products fitting into those niches. But you've done such a great job on your site tying the product to 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 the messaging of the you know fitness powerlifter uh, demographic that it I wouldn't have imagined that it would work for for you know streetwear or you know dancers. But now that you mentioned it, I can certainly see why it would fit. Now, how did you recognize that these were growing demographics enough for you to to do a pivot and move? You know, when I see your site, I don't think about dancers at all. I think about a lot about fitness, a lot about uh, you know uh, power lifters. But uh, of course, a shoe can work it for any case. But how were you able to be so confident in knowing that this was a demographic that you should move into and essentially away from what was already successful in the past? Uh, well, we can thank Instagram for that because I sort of just randomly discovered some bodybuilders wearing Hey Day footwear to the gym. And I started seeing more and more of them wearing, wearing Hey Days, uh, working out. And I kind of realized like, wow, this is, this is a big market. And in 2014 is, you know, sort of when the whole fitness athleisure, you know, organic food, wellness, all that stuff, wearables, all of that was starting to really coalesce and, and build. And I just realized, you know what, this is a huge market. Um, the shoes are functional. Um, my shoes have a flat sole and it has like a basically a zero drop. So your foot is parallel with the floor, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, something that gym goers really want because you want to have a stable platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're squatting or doing deadlifts, you don't want to be wearing running shoes, which have a higher heel that's heavily cushioned um, because it'll it'll push you forward. And then if you're going really heavy, the cushioning in the, in the EVA, which is the foam on a, on a running shoe, it'll compress. And you don't want that when you're when you're uh, squatting five or six hundred pounds or deadlifting five hundred pounds. Um, and my shoes, just because of the way I had designed them. They, they had that uh, feature uh, built in. And also gym goers, you know, sort of your gym rats, really. People are in the gym all the time. They, they want to stand out. They're going to the gym. Obviously, it's healthy. Uh, you know, it's good for your body. It's good for your mind. But people like the way they look after you're working out for a while. Mm-hmm. And they want to stand out. You know, it's really sort of like, hey, look at me. And my shoes stand out. Um, we're primarily all high tops. Um, you'll see most people are wearing Nike freeze or, you know, just running sneakers and they look like everyone else. And my customers don't want to look like everyone else. They really feel down to their very core that they are unique and that they're hustlers and they're grinding and that they're, you know, they're doing stuff that no one else wants to do. You know, no one wants to eat healthy. Uh, or eat clean or go to the gym every day or, or, you know, I'm, you know, my customers are like, well, I'm going to the bar on Friday night. And it's like, you know, they'll post a picture on Instagram of, of them at the squat rack or doing bench press on a Friday night. Like that's the bar and protein drinks are, <laughs> are their cocktails. That's um, funny. And that's not for everybody, but you know, fitness is a huge market and they want to stand out. They want to, they want to, show the world that, that that's their, you know, that's their cult, that's their cultures, that they work out. And because I, 
the shoes are totally functional and they look super cool. And I've managed to get them on a lot of celebrities, uh, both in the fitness world and out of the fitness world. Um, you know, it makes people think, wow, I, I think I got to go check those out. They look really unique and I don't want to look like everyone else. Mm. Now, let's say that you were, I'm not sure what the timeline of all this was, but let's say you were marketing to hip hop dancers at one point, saw on Instagram that gym rats were wearing your, your shoes a lot, and you decided to, to pivot in that direction. Uh, you know, the question I think will come up is like, you know, why not just market to both hip hop dancers and, and gym rats at the same time? I never turned away from the hip hop dancers, but I, I just did focus on fitness. I mean, I also part of it is me. I mean, the brand is me. I should probably tell you how afterwards, why the name is heyday, but, um, I, I wasn't a dancer. <laughs> I don't dance. Um, so while I was sort of in the mark, you know, I was in that world, but I wasn't really part of it because I'm not a dancer. Um, but I've always worked out and I just feel like I'm a part of that fitness world. Mm. Um, you know, do I look like I'm, you know, as good as my customers? No, I don't. Cause I've got a very busy, uh, a very busy life and I don't get to go to the gym as much as I want to, but it just resonated with me. Like I, I felt like, okay, you know what? I always wanted to look good. I'm always in the gym. And it just meant more to me than, than dancers. And also, you know, just looking at the market, it, the world of hip hop dancers is just not a big market. There's, you know, there's lots of teenage girls that, uh, that dance, um, sort of competitively or, or actively. But in looking at that, that market, you know, teenage girls don't really have a lot of disposable income. Um, you know, it was like, okay, well, their parents will pay for the shoes, but their parents don't necessarily want to spend $150 on a pair of sneakers for a 14-year-old girl. Um, whereas with the fitness market, it's generally people over 18. You know, it's, it's 18 to 44, and certainly goes higher than 44. But, you know, people are generally out of high school. Maybe they're in college, out of college, they're working. They have disposable income. And if you're, if you're really into that, uh, into the gym, you know, you're spending $150 a month on protein and supplements. You're, you know, you're, the gym is your bar. It is your social scene. And people want to look good when they go to the gym. They want to have shoes that match their outfit every day. And it just, it, it's just a bigger opportunity. Um, I still have some dancers that wear the shoes, but I just, I, I saw, I saw more of an opportunity in fitness than there was in dance. But you know, technically speaking, dancers are still athletes and it's still the fitness world. So it's not like I excluded myself from, from dance. I'm mm -hmm. still, it, you could be wearing heydays, perform all you want as a dancer and then go to the gym. You're still wearing the same shoes and not look like, Oh, you know, you're wearing Capizios to the gym. No, you know, they're not, they're not what it would be considered traditional dance shoes. They're sneakers. Right. Yeah. I think maybe the, the kind of leading questions that I was trying to ask was, uh, do you think that it could hurt your overall business if you were to kind of dilute your messaging in too many different directions, right? If you're trying to cater to everybody, you know, you know dancers, streetwear, gym rats, could it hurt your business overall? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's definitely 
it's definitely a possibility, especially sort of at the level that I'm at. Um, I mean, you, you can certainly bifurcate or, or split up the business to reach different markets, um, possibly with different product. Um, but you know, at this point, I don't want to dilute the brand. We're, we're now heavily in as a, as a fitness brand. So no, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to focus on the dance world. If dancers want to wear the shoes, they totally can. I mean, there's certainly tons of video on YouTube of very famous dancers wearing the shoes. And if someone went to the website, they'd see the same shoes. Yes. They would see that there's, you know, a lot of bodybuilders and, you know, bikini competitors and whatever wearing the shoes, but it's still the same product. Mm. Now, when you decided to to pivot into a new market, what, what needs to change? Like, It sounds like a pretty large hit list of things that you need to go through and revise. What was on your, your kind of top uh, t- top of your list to, to make sure to change when you do pivot into a, into a new market? Well, you got to make sure that the product is the right product for for that for that demographic um if you know the dance if, if i was doing dance shoes and you know if, if they weren't the right shoes for a bodybuilder or for a gym rat to, to go work out in then you can't really pivot successfully into that market you have to be authentic the shoes are truly great for all sorts of uh training styles cardio leg day, you know, boxing, Zumba, uh, it doesn't matter. The shoes work performance wise, uh, for that demographic. Uh, and and, you know, I don't want to be a poser uh, and be like, I don't want to just jump on to a market if it's not the right fit for the brand. You got to be real. Right, makes sense. Now, with shoe, you know, a lot, of, a lot of listeners out there are, are could be in apparel business, and but they're most, most, a lot of them are probably selling things like clothing or shirts. I feel I don't, I don't know much about shoe design, but it seems like there are certainly unique challenges with creating shoes, right? Because you have to have not only fit, but needs to function. And there are so many different sizes. People don't know exactly what size they are in different shoes. What's been your experience? Like what have, what have been the, the biggest headaches, I guess, with creating uh, your own shoe? Well, it, there's a really high barrier to entry in footwear. Um, you know, anybody can really start a t-shirt brand. Um, and, in the fitness world, you'll see that there's a million sort of fitness t-shirt brands and leggings and whatever, um, that, you know, every, everybody builder wants to be sponsored. They want to win competitions and they want to have their own brand. Well, it's very easy. I mean, you know, with Shopify even, I mean, go on Printful. You don't even have to buy any inventory. Um, anyone can start a Mm t-shirt doing that. Um, and sort of before those print on demand days, I mean, okay, so you find a local printer, you buy some blank t-shirts, you print something very easy to get into. Well, footwear design and manufacturing, the manufacturing is all in Asia. And, you know, I've been to China 52 times. Um, and my business partner is, is based in, in China and working with our factories. If, if you don't know China, and have those connections with the factories, you just can't, you can't do it. You can't get into the business. The, the cost of 
the molds <clears throat> for the outsoles and for the the upper tooling, which is basically your your pattern pieces for for the for the for the shoes, is very very expensive. You know, for a t-shirt, okay, I'm gonna you know you buy a hundred t-shirts and you come up with something in Illustrator or Photoshop and you're good to go. Uh, for each outsole, which is the sole, it's almost two thousand dollars per size, and add maybe another five hundred to seven hundred and fifty dollars for patterns uh, for the uppers. So you're now talking to have, let's say, a complete size run on uh, with one design. It could be twenty five thousand dollars, and that keeps most people away. Also, you know, it's very you can't really get into footwear. And be successful by going on Alibaba and and trying to find a manufacturer. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to get screwed. Um, but I, I've been in the business. I was in the business for ten years, corporate, uh, prior to starting my own brand. I, I knew the business. I knew how to design shoes. I knew how to make shoes. Um, you got to have that knowledge. You, you have to. So there, it, there's a high barrier to entry that will keep ninety nine percent of the people. Uh, that maybe have thought about maybe they you know they're really into sneakers or they really like Air Jordans or they sketch sneakers. That's great. Go ahead and try and try and make a shoe brand. It's very difficult. Hmm. Now you you mentioned uh, that it's not as easy as just going to Alibaba and looking for a manufacturer. How many manufacturers did you have to go through to find the one that you're with today? I'm on I think my fifth factory. Um, and honestly, the, even the factory that I'm with now, and I've been with them for four or five years, they mess up all the time. And that, that they mess up with me being a 20-year veteran of the industry mm -hmm. and have a partner that's there. They still cannot get stuff right all the time. Um, it, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult. You, you have to have someone on the ground. Um, there's no way that you could you could manufacture in Asia without being there. Um, they just you just can't it can't be done. Mm. So other than having someone on the ground, let's say that someone does have a partner there in China as well uh, at the factory. What else can you do to 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 I guess ensure at least as much as possible that you're going to get what you expect? Um, honestly, you need you need to be there. You, you need mm -hmm. you need to, you need to go to China or go to go to wherever the factory is and spend time there and really teach them what you want and also learn what is what is viable and what can be done. Um, lots of young designers create crazy things that really cannot be manufactured easily or at all, um, and then the factory has to change the designs drastically in order to make them. And then the designer is like, oh, that's not what I designed. It looks terrible. Well, that's because you probably don't know the manufacturing end and how to, to design so that shoes can be made cheaply and easily and uh, something that can be repeated. You know, being able to make something once doesn't help if you need to make 10,000 of them. Hmm. So how do you make sure that, let's say someone does have uh, this uh, crazy design or this uh, design that, that, is, that is not seen in other products and they want to see if it's a viable uh, design, a viable product that they want to have made overseas, how do they 
you know, go, let's say they do go to China, how do they make sure that that their product is going to be uh, created in the right way? Like, what, what kind of advice do you have to give for someone that is, let's say, going to China for the first time and bringing their, their designs for the first time to these factories? When you're creating your, your specs, your specifications, or your blueprints, um, you really have to, you, you really cannot leave anything left to the imagination. Whatever you think may be obvious that that's how it should be done, you can't assume that someone who doesn't know your language is going to be able to interpret what is in your head. You have to spell out everything, um, you know, from the the type of thread that you want to how many stitches per inch to the exact color using Pantone's. Um, the exact materials, preferably showing a swatch of the exact material that you want, showing as many different views as you can to communicate the idea effectively. Um, it, you just you have to be so redundant. You have, you have, you have to don't think that you're you're telling them too much information. There's never too much information um, because again. It, you're basically dealing with, with people who they don't speak the language and honestly, they don't even have the same mindset that we do. I mean, people in, in China that they think differently than we do. What may be really obvious to us in the U S or in Canada or Europe, um, regarding, let's say a, a design or the way to do something properly, they may not think that way there. So I've had plenty of uh, experience where I've said, I want you to use this material and do it this way. And the manufacturer will say, think to themselves, you know what? I actually have a cousin down the road from the factory who, who is a vendor. They own a leather, they, whatever it is. And instead of using the material that you asked for, they'll use their cousin's material or their friend's material mm -hmm. because maybe they can save a couple pennies. Of course, they're not going to tell you that they found something that's cheaper than what you asked for. They're just going to do it without telling you. And they maybe they realize or maybe they don't realize that that's not what the designer asked for. And maybe it's totally inferior to what the designer asked for. But they think, you know what, I can make a couple extra pennies or dollars doing it this way. And they don't really think long term that, you know what, I should do this exactly the way my customer asked me to. And that way they'll get what they want and then they'll come back and, and give me more business. Instead of thinking very short term, ah, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple extra bucks right now and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it with the materials that I want to use instead of doing what the customer wants. And then, and then the customer realized, hey, that's not what I asked for. You did it all wrong. And then the factory doesn't care. They lose the business. The customer, the designer has to find a new factory. And it's just, a, it makes a difficult situation. Mm. Uh, but they don't necessarily have the same mentality that we do as Westerners um, about problem solving. They, they, I've found that my factories generally want the easiest possible solution that there is rather than what might be the right solution. 
to have long-term success, you got to do things the right way, not cut corners. Right. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned earlier about your approach to marketing through influencers. You said that you had your product in in a popular video game, and you've also gotten your product onto fitness celebrities. What's been your approach here? How have you been able to connect with, well, let's start with a video game. How were you able to get your product into a video game? Um, I have a uh, distributor in the UK who is a uh, very successful and he was friends with or i think the guy had worked for him uh, who was the ceo of thq which was a big software a big video mm -hmm. game sure uh who subsequently went bankrupt but basically it was an introduction um someone i knew someone that i worked with said hey this guy's looking to put a, a cool sneaker into his video game and just recommended me and I was in early enough that they were actually able to code the shoes into the game on the disc. Um, and it just wound up being a very lucrative uh, licensing deal. It, a lot of it really comes down to, to who you know. Um, I, I was once uh, featured in a TV commercial for a uh, business card uh, printer that I use called Moo, uh, Moo.com. They make mm -hmm. these really cool business cards. Um, and I... I'm a good networker. I wound up meeting um, the CEO at South by Southwest. Um, I was picking up some business cards from them that, that they had made for me. And they liked my story. A couple months later, they featured me in a blog post. And then a few weeks after that, they came to me and said, hey, um, we're doing our first uh, national and international TV campaign. And we want to feature our customers. We'd love you to do it, to have you do it. So... They interviewed me uh, at a recording studio for about five hours, asking me a million questions uh, about being an entrepreneur and, and business. They edited it down to 27 seconds. Um, they had uh, a, an animator in France then animate what I was saying out of cut paper. Um, so it was like a stop motion um, animation. And... In the, in the commercial, part of they say, what, what one piece of advice would you give? I said, my one piece of advice is to network, network, network. You never know when someone you meet somewhere could be important. And I really feel that, that that's extremely important is you just never know where you're going to meet someone and, and, and how they could be important to your business or how you could be important to their business. Um, you know, look, I, I, got connected with you because I'm pretty active in the Shopify and entrepreneurs group. And, uh, another one, um, and Susan Bradley, uh, who runs, uh, one of those Facebook groups and is also owns a footwear brand. She liked my story. I think she gave me a shout out to you and look, now we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, definitely a full circle here. That's a great example. Well, no, I think this is a, it's a really important point about how networking is. It's essentially, that is what business comes down to a lot of times having those connections building those connections and and going through that entire process based on what you've done what what you have experienced what would you say is the the most important thing that you've learned about what makes a successful i guess what has helped you build your network um and what what's an what's example of a mistake that you see a lot of entrepreneurs making when it when it comes to networking um, well, you, part of it is you got to be fearless. I mean, you may not like getting up in front of people, 
Um, but if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be able to pitch your business. Literally, sometimes you have to be able to give a 30-second elevator pitch in an elevator. Um, if you don't feel comfortable or you're shy, that's going to be a hindrance. Yeah, I mean, you, you just have to be able to be passionate about your business, about what you're doing. If you're not really into it, it's going to be really hard to get someone else into it. So you, you have to just love what it is that you're doing and really believe in it and then be able to communicate that love and that passion to someone else. That, that, that's really, that's really key. Hmm. Now I want to talk a little bit about your, your site. So I'm looking at, um, uh, different prices throughout your sites, looking at, you know, a few products here, $110, $139, $115. Has the price always been the same or how did you come, how do you arrive at a price point for your products? The pricing, yeah, the pricing has always sort of been pretty much in that range. I mean, I used to be a little bit higher. Um, my highest product was usually around one hundred and sixty-five dollars. Um, I've since brought it down. One thing that that impacts, I mean, obviously, how much margin do you need to make in order to uh, be profitable is mm -hmm. certainly one thing. Um, but one thing that does affect uh, sort of the fluctuation in price is whether you're going to do free shipping, um, you know, are you going to build your shipping cost into the price of the shoes and offer free shipping on everything? Or are you going to have a threshold um, and have a, maybe a lower product price um, on some of it? And then on your, you know, your higher ticket items, or if someone's buying multiple items and you go over that threshold and then you give free shipping. So that can affect your, your pricing. Um, but, you know, I, I, generally looking to make about 50, 50 points, uh, 50% margin. And then, you know, some of it is just, uh, you have to play around with the pricing. Um, you know, how much are you going to be discounting? Um, are you doing a 10% uh, discount on a, on an email signup? Are you doing affiliate marketing and you're giving all your affiliates, uh, first a commission on sales plus there, are they offering, their fans, let's say 10% or some other dollar amount discount on product because that will affect your, your margin. So you have to kind of take outside factors into effect uh, with, with what your pricing is going to be and what you need to make to be profitable. What's your experience been with uh, the, the shipping setup? Do you find that it's better to offer free shipping with the shipping baked into the price? Or uh, would you rather have a lower price point and charge for shipping? Um, I mean, I've done both. Um, I've had the $150 free, free U.S. shipping threshold for probably uh, maybe about 10 months now. And... For 150, basically, if you're buying one pair, you pretty much have to pay shipping. But if you're buying two pairs, then you get free shipping in the U.S. Um, and you know my shipping prices aren't so huge that you know if someone sees it's eight dollars or fourteen dollars for shipping on a pair of shoes, that it, you know I don't think it scares them away so much. I'm sort of more worried that, okay, if I did free shipping, then my, you know, my $99 uh, style is then going to, I'm going to have to charge 120. And I think the 99, especially, uh, you know, using psychological pricing, uh, generally things ending in a nine, 
are more appealing to people's brains for whatever reason. I don't remember what it is. Um, but having, having something that's $99 and then, okay, you add shipping, you know, you're upfront with what your shipping costs are. You're not trying to hide it. Um, I think that is, is, is good. Um, you know, if my, if my price points were 40 or $50 and then I had a $150 threshold, then, okay, then maybe people are like, oh, so I got to buy four pairs of whatever in order to get free shipping. But in my case, it's generally, you know, if they're buying one pair, they got to pay, they got to pay for shipping. Um, and multiple pairs, they get free shipping. Mm. So I'm looking at the site now and, and you have a lot going on on this site and not in a bad way, in a very, what seems to be a very purposeful way. And I think it's a great case study for anyone that wants to see kind of the key items that you have to hit on to increase conversion rate. And just for anyone listening, um, it's going over a few different things. You have ur- urgency in play a lot. It looks like you have this announcement bar that says new shoes have arrived, click the shop now or cry later. You have an X of 100 uh, you know, X number of a hundred sold. You have a number of people looking at a product. What What was the um? I guess intention going to this? How did you know to create this kind of uh, I guess uh, feeling for someone when they land on your site? Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff I, I have picked up being active uh, in the Shopify Facebook groups, um, where you know I'm learning. Uh, I'm learning a lot about marketing and sales and psychology, but Really, a lot of the features that are on the site are from the theme. Uh, we're using a, a third-party theme called Shoptimized. Um, and it, most of that stuff is all built in. Um, I do rely on a lot of apps. I mean, I see lots of people say, oh, they slow down your store. I don't find that they do. And people, you know, I have probably 25 or 30 apps running. Um, and I've had people say, oh, you know, why do you have so many apps? Well, because there's a lot of stuff that, that you need to take care of. What, what would you say are some of your favorite apps? I used uh, Judge Me for, uh, for reviews, and I think it's great. Um, I looked at Yachtpo, and Yachtpo wanted, I believe it was $599 a month, $599 a month for reviews, and then they had another uh, sort of sellable Instagram component for an additional $600 a month. and. I get a great review uh, app from from PJ at Judge Me for fifteen dollars a month. Um, you know, it shows verified uh, reviews. People can add photos to the reviews. Uh, you can set the number of days after someone makes a purchase or it's fulfilled that they receive uh, an email with a really easy, uh, you know, ability to to leave a review. Um, you can share the reviews on Facebook. Um, I have a dedicated page uh, just showing all of the reviews, all, you know, 220 four and five star reviews. Um, you know, people want that social proof. They want to know what other people think of, of the product. Um, you know, it's almost like they they don't want to believe what the brand says. They want to know what real customers, uh, how they feel about the brand. So that, you know, reviews are, are really, really important. And, um, you know, I think Judge Me has been great, especially at that price point. Um, I use uh, social photos uh, for my Instagram feeds that are right on the site. So when you go below the fold, um, you can see uh, curated uh, Instagram posts. And when you mouse over it, you get a buy it button and you can buy right from there on the website. 
um, as well as product galleries of Instagram on each product page. Um, because again, it's really important for someone to read, uh, what, you know, someone's review is, but almost more important is, well, how do the shoes really look on a real person? Um, you know, not on a model, um, and user generated content is just huge for me. I mean, part of it, I think is in the fitness market, uh, everyone that goes to the gym, everyone's on Instagram. And everyone always wants to show off their, you know, what their latest buy is, whether it's shoes, T-shirt, hat, protein powder, uh, weight belt, uh, you know, weightlifting gloves, um, you know, whatever it is, people want to show it off. Um, and shoes are, you know, sort of a bigger ticket item in in the fitness world. I mean, you know, yeah, Lululemon has very expensive apparel, but for the most part, people aren't necessarily wearing expensive apparel. Um, but people will invest in a good pair of shoes. Um, and so it's really important to show people, hey, this is how real people are using the product. Um, so I use social photos for that. Um, I use Sweet Tooth, which is now smile.io for, um, for my rewards program. Um, I use Refersion for affiliate marketing. Um, what else? I just started uh, using a, an app last week called, I think it's called pronounced Searchinize or Searchinase, like mayonnaise. I don't know. Um, I saw it, someone post about it on the, on the uh, Shopify entrepreneurs group and it, it totally, uh, your search uh, feature uh, on the website. Um, it, so if you go to the search bar on the site, it'll show you, um, Let's see. I'll type in, let's see what comes up. I'll type in tactile. In fact, I just typed in tact and you get popular suggestions of tactical trainer, tactical, tactical boots, a synonym, camouflage, um, categories, camo, tactical trainer. It shows blog posts. It shows the product with a thumbnail, with a description, with a price. Um, it, the, the search feature did not do that previously. Mm. So it's like an auto suggest. Yeah. I mean, feature. I had looked at it. I had looked at a search um, app called uh, Nextopia, um, which I think was three or four hundred dollars a month for basically the same thing. And this, I think, is fifteen bucks a month, and I just love it. Um, and and we found uh, with the search with the search bar, the original uh, version of the site, the search bar was uh, it had a gray outline. The button was, uh, I think, in gray. There was no, there was no text inside the search bar, and no one was using it. And we went in and made a couple changes. I actually um, used uh, Hey Carson uh, to do little uh, coding tweaks, and I had them um, basically just change the stroke of the search bar to red and the button to red, and add um, some ghosted text inside. It's a search by size, color, or style. And then people all of a sudden saw that they could search, and that increased um, the use of it. And then people who people who are using the search bar are far more likely to actually convert because they're they're they have an intent that they're looking for something specific, and you want to make sure that they can find it. Um, you know, the, I, we try to make the navigation as easy as possible, um, but you know, we use mega menus which are complicated to set up. 
Um, and sometimes people just, you know, they know what they want to look for and necessarily going through all the So to give them the ability to just use the search bar and find something really easily is, I think, really important. And now our conversions are absolutely going up uh, now that we've enhanced the search bar with this uh, Searchinize app. Uh, let's see, what else am I using? Um, I was using a chat, uh, you know, a chat um, box on the site for a long time, but I just switched to a new app called um, MessageMates, which allows you allows the customer to text me. Like you can just tap the the thing and to send me a text message and just write back. Um, I found that it's it's easier to use than uh, than a chat window. Um, and also, it's sort of a novel. I mean, everybody uses chat windows these days. Um, but when you, you know, work, it works great on mobile as well as desktop. And, you know, it says right there, have a question, tap the number to text us. It's super easy. And I don't know, I think maybe it's just something different for people uh, who are used to seeing chat windows everywhere. Yeah, definitely haven't seen this before, but it certainly caught my eye when it popped up in the in the corner. I use uh, I use Just Uno. Um, that that top uh, floating bar that you mentioned earlier um, is uh, is Just Uno. We use Shoelace for uh, for Facebook retargeting. Um, I'm very happy with them um, using their new Journeys uh, campaigns, which is like a, a drip for uh, for retargeting. Um, I'm back to using Kit since it went went free a few weeks ago. I use an inventory app called Stocky, which uh, helps um, forecast uh, what inventory you need to be reordering and shows you how much loot money you're losing every day because you're out of stocks. I just switched to a new email uh, provider uh, called Smarter, um, which uses like a, some kind of predictive algorithm for um, product recommendations. And you can send emails very, very quickly. It, it, it'll send a different email to every single customer um, with with different product recommendations. This is called Smart Mail, you said? Smarter Mail. Smarter Mail. S-A-R-T-R, Smart R Mail. Um, And it's very inexpensive um, for what they're offering. And it looks like they're also really starting to build out their feature set. Um, They've been up for about a year. Um, I'm also uh, using Clavio. Though I may wind up just going to Smarter Mail exclusively, I'm sort of I'm testing uh, different email providers right now. Um, I've been on HubSpot for the last year and am uh, moving away from them uh, as quickly as I can. They're ridiculously expensive. Um, uh, I was using them for more than just email, but uh, I just I don't know. I'm trying to save money. And HubSpot is is extremely expensive tool that's really not that easy to use. Um, so I think Clavio is great also, um, but I, I may wind up uh, choosing to go with Smarter Mail um, in, in a few weeks uh, once I finish uh, sort of doing the trials. Awesome. Yeah, certainly a long list of apps. And I mean, I'm on your site now and I don't notice a slowdown at all. So I, I, don't, I don't think there's an issue at all installing all of these apps that you're talking about. Um, so, you know, thank you so much for your time, Darren. So, heydayfootwear.com, that's H-E-Y-D-A-Y-F-O-O-T-W-E-A-R.com. Where do you want to see, where do you want to take the brand next? 
Uh, well, we actually just uh, we just got uh, an angel investor about a month ago. Um, so we finally have some funding. Um, so we are really looking to uh, to blow the brand up. Um, I just got my first uh, paid endorser or influencer. Um, I, I've had plenty of influencers. Uh, you know, they, everyone asks for shoes. You send them shoes. They do one post, and that's it. And you know, the post is gone in forty-five minutes. Um, but uh, with my new endorser, uh, Martin Ford, who's a six-foot-eight, three hundred and twenty-pound bodybuilder and actor, um, I'm working with him, and he's going to be posting four times a week, three months. I'm really interested in seeing just having that consistency in an influencer with 820,000 followers on Instagram, like, does that really boost things up? Cause I've had plenty of people with big followings that, uh, you know, they do one or two posts and that's it. And yeah. Okay. I have the photo that I, I reuse a million times, but the whole point is to get their followers, uh, interested and excited about the brand, not just my customers and followers showing, Oh, Hey, so-and-so is wearing the shoes. I need to bring in new business. So I, the, the investment has allowed me to, uh, to sort of do this uh, with Martin Ford. Um, we are now talking again with uh, with a new video game uh, publisher about getting back into uh, doing uh, collaborations with video games. Um, yeah, I mean, things are really rocketing forward. Um, and after 10 years in the business, I'm happy to say that I never – that I did not quit, even though there were a million times I wanted to quit. As recently as two months ago, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And I was persistent and stuck it out and it all turned around. So just don't give up. Amazing. I think that's probably the most important thing is that persistence and not to give up. And even at the stage that you're at, like you're saying two months ago, probably tons of success at that point. Still, you were considering it. So I think that it's important that you have that kind of mindset that you have to constantly fight back against that urge to quit. So again, really appreciate you coming on, Darren. Again, heydayfootwear.com. Thank you again so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Felix. I'm really, really excited to uh, to be able to share this with you. And uh, you know, th- thanks so much for, for, for choosing me. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. You don't want to fight those big companies on a level playing field because you'll lose. Um, If the playing field is even, they will beat you every time. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com slash blog.